0: We're going to be in Revelation chapter 14. As you're turning there, the last time we saw the second beast mentioned in 13, which we know is the false prophet, the sidekick or the propaganda minister to the Antichrist, the coming world dictator. And today we're going to see a few things. The victorious 144,000, which we've seen before, the three angels' announcements and the two harvests. And chapter 14 really gives us a glimpse of, of into eternity really a dichotomy where the only two paths in life will lead you can take the wide road that jesus says and many find it to destruction uh it's a road of rebellion sin and wickedness or only one other path to take jesus spoke about the narrow road very few find it but that's the path that leads to eternal life and that's the path that's found through obedience to christ and trusting jesus as your lord and savior Uh, I'm going to try to get through chapter 14, move at a pretty quick pace, because I don't want to divide up this chapter. So we'll start with verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, this is the Apostle John speaking, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists, playing their harps and they sang as it were a new song before the throne before the four living creatures and the elders and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth these are the ones who were not defiled with women for they are virgins these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes these were redeemed from among men being firstfruits to God and to the lamb and in their mouth was found no guile or no deceit, and they are without fault before the throne of God, or blameless. So the Apostle John sees this victorious 144,000, and if you're with us in chapter 7, you'll remember what this group was, 144,000 Jewish believers gone out to give the gospel in a very dark and desolate time, and because of them, they really bring a lot of the Gentiles into the faith, kind of a reverse of what we're doing today. The lamb, we've seen this before, is a picture of Jesus. And Zion is a geographic location within Jerusalem, but it's also been used figuratively of God's spiritual kingdom. This is a heavenly vision, I believe. This is an end result. Now, don't get confused by, we're going to hear about the temple, we're going to hear about the temple mount, and you might think, okay, Jerusalem, physical, tangible. We're talking about heavenly visions here, and we know that everything that God set up to be on the earth was a copy, the spiritual things, are a copy of those things in heaven. So this is a, a heavenly vision. And they have God the Father's name written on their foreheads, signifying ownership. In verse 2, it speaks about this, the harps again. It's interesting, I looked it up, the word harp in Greek is kathara, which where in English we get the word guitar from. So it's uh, some type of stringed instrument. I don't know if it's exactly the ones you see on the cartoons where they're strumming the keys, but... Maybe, Dave, when you go to heaven, you could apply for the accompaniment there. I mean, I'll be able to retire. There'll be no need for police officers or pastors, so I'm just going to have my ease, but maybe I can listen to Dave play. (laughs) Verse 3 The 144,000 fulfilled their mandate. Only they can sing this particular song, which applies to their unique dispensation. And 4 and 5 they were virgins. Now some would say that these are spiritual, this is a spiritual type of virginity in a sense that they were pure from idolatry. But I think that you know we shouldn't over symbolize things. I believe that they literally were virgins in a sense that number one, they were pure in the sense that they did not fornicate. And number two, in the sense that they couldn't even have a family if they wanted to because they were ministering in such dark times, there was no time to get married and raise a family. Now we saw that, it's not unusual. We saw that in the prophet Jeremiah, John the Baptist, the apostle Paul, and they were the first fruits to God. The first fruits at the grain harvest, when they would gather the grain, okay, uh, they would have what was called the first fruits. This was an offering presented to God. Now, this was the first of the grain and also the best of the grain that you would take and offer to God. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning that Jesus really led the way for resurrection. He did something very unusual. And then you saw after his death, the, uh, those that came out of the graves and appeared to many in Jerusalems, and then the rapture. We're really the rest of the harvest that gets taken up uh, in, in the sense of the harvest of the resurrection. These 144,000 Jewish believers were really the first room... First fruits of the redeemed in the tribulation period. So the rapture comes, we get raptured, right? And then there's other people left on the earth. Uh, people still come to Christ during this very dark period. And, uh, you know, the 144,000 are eventually taken out. And they're the first fruits to that second harvest, so to speak, post-harpazo in the Greek or rapture, as we know in the English. The 144,000, check this out. Don't miss this. They were without fault. They were without deceit, they were without guile, they were blameless, pretty, pretty good guys. The times were so wicked that they stood out like an oasis in the midst of the desert in that society. There is a phenomenon today of people, pastors, a group of the new ministry teams that are coming up, the youthful look of the, of the pastors who are trying to minister to the young people. If you Google the word cussing pastor, you'll find someone very interesting. His name is Mark Driscoll. And I've read about him. I've read some of his quotes. He dresses really cool. He's got the look. He talks the lingo, uses sometimes profane language, and sometimes he uses lewd language in a sexual sense to win this generation to Christ. I think that's idiotic. And I don't say that word very much from the pulpit, but we're supposed to stand out We're not supposed to become like the world to win the world. I don't remember Jesus acting or going into the prostitutes. I don't remember Jesus getting drunk with the drunkards. I don't remember Jesus, John the Baptist, acting like the people that they were trying to bring. They were to set a standard. They were supposed to be a light in a dark world. They were supposed to be salt and preserve the body from rotting, the corpse. Right? When believers are taken out of the world and the salt is taken out of the world, things are just going to get worse. Teens crave stability. They may not be saying that with their mouths, but they're saying that with their hearts and they're testing you. They're saying, show me by example. I'll use my wife for an example and she'll probably be embarrassed, but the third Sunday of every uh, month while I'm up here, she goes into a room with your teenage girls. And my wife doesn't dress like the girls dress today. She doesn't dress trashy, she's very conservative. She doesn't talk the talk. She doesn't use profanity. She's a strong force. She speaks to your young ladies. She's firm. She's godly. She's loving. And she shows them Christ. And she doesn't play. She doesn't play. She lets them know that if they have certain actions, that there'll be certain consequences to their actions. Okay? Now, every one of those teen girls that I've talked to that have been in with my wife have come out and said, I can't wait for the third Sunday of every month. I wish Heather taught this more. Why? Why? Because if your youth, your youth are rebelling, and maybe they have problems, maybe they have emotional issues, and with their physical beings, they're gonna, they're gonna, it's like the waves crashing against a, a big rock in the middle of the ocean, and they're gonna keep crashing against you. But what they're looking for from you, from adults, is that you don't move, because that gives them security and stability. So this nonsense of trying to be like the generation X, Y, or Z. Listen, I'm not that old. I remember what it was like to be a teenager. And the ones that impressed me the most when I was growing up were those adults that didn't act like me, that I could look up to and say, you mean I could be like that one day? So this garbage, this idiocy, lunacy of adults trying to act like kids to win the kids is foolishness. How many youth pastors have to fall into sexual sin because they're loose on their morals before we realize that it's not the way to go. We need to be strong for our young people. We need to set that example. And leaders in general, we're supposed to set an example. We're not supposed to fellowship with others so we can be carnal and fleshy. We're not supposed to become like the world to win the world to Christ. We need to be salt and light. Who's the bigger influence? Is it you or the unsafe people that you know? Hopefully, you're rubbing off on them, and they're not rubbing off on you. It's important to note. First Chronicles 69 is one of my favorite uh, scriptures, and I'll paraphrase it. It says, the eyes of the Lord scan the earth. They run to and fro upon the face of the earth. And God is just looking for some people that are loyal to him, that he can show himself strong through. He's looking for loyalty. So what do we learn from this 144,000? They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Are you willing to follow the lamb wherever he goes? In your thought life? In your devotional life? In your family life? Do we have a name that's written in our foreheads? Do we say, I'm owned by Jesus Christ? I'm owned. Nobody can buy me. I'm owned. Who do we identify with? People like us? People that look like us? That are similar to us? Well, that's a shame. Because there's no segregation in heaven. We need to identify with those who are like Christ. Similar salt and similar light. So that we can work together to be a preserving influence on this world. How many would say, Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, I will do. Without even knowing prior. I'm just raising my hand, Lord. I trust you. These five verses await the victorious. And the ones who are willing to identify with God. And you know what's interesting? In chapter 7... How many were there? 144,000? Chapter 14, how many there? 144,000? None were lost. That should be comforting to us today. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth the sea, and the springs of water. Here we see three successive angelic announcements to the world. The first one is preaching the gospel. The times are so wicked and dark spiritually that for the first time I can recall in Scripture that there's an angel preaching the gospel and not a person. Interesting. Some argue and say, well, this isn't the gospel. I've seen that and I don't get it because it says the everlasting gospel. Some believe that maybe it's just a call to repent, a John the Baptist-style message, which there's an element of it there, to counter the lies of the Antichrist. Fear, the, fear God. He's the one who made everything. The lie is, is starting to be propagated by the world dictator, and the world is starting to be swayed by this, this charismatic leader. Either way, we can even disagree on the, um, uh, the hermeneutics of it, but what we can say is that God still loved these rebellious and wicked and nasty people so much that his desire is that at least some of them would be saved. Second Peter still applies, 3, 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some would count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I believe that. That's God's desire, that all should come to repentance. Verse 8. Second angel. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Second angel's only message is that Babylon has fallen. What's Babylon? Well, this is first of all, this is more of a harbinger or a foretelling, as these three announcements are also warnings. Babylon has manifold significance, and we're going to get more into it in chapters 17 and 18, but Babylon has definitely a spiritual element to it. It has a political element, an economic element, and a geographic element. We'll cover that later. But those will drink of the wine of the wrath of a fornication. Babylon is, represents a system of man, a system of man going his own way in rebellion, a system of Satan uh, as an undertone or, or, or propping that system up. And when you take of Babylon, what she does is she makes you drunk and stupefied to the point where you, you're constantly pulling away from God. Again, we'll talk about that later. Verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink also of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and who receive and whoever receives the mark of his name. The third message. If you do that, then this is what's going to follow. It's called in English grammar a conditional statement, an if-then statement. They use it in computers too. This is all throughout scripture. If you choose good... You see this in the Old Testament. God said to the children of Israel, here, it's a very simple plan. Everybody can figure this one out. If you do good and you follow me and you trust me and you let me lead you and you don't follow after false gods, not a lot to ask, it'll go well with you. The harvest will be good, you know, your lives will be good and, and your enemies won't come in and invade. God said, if you do bad, if you do wicked, if you rebel against me, if you play spiritual harlotry and you follow after false gods, then this is what awaits you. Your enemies will invade, your children will become unruly, see it in this country. We fall away from God and there's a cause and effect relationship. So it's an if-then statement. If you choose evil, then judgment will follow. Verse 10 has both the figurative and literal elements to it in one verse. Figurative. If you allow yourself to get drunk and stupefied off the wine of the world system, the result is that you will drink of the wine of the wrath of God's judgment. Now, undiluted, the Bible says, in those days whether it was Jewish or Roman culture uh they would dilute the wine economic reasons uh you know obviously to maybe curb uh intoxication uh so they would dilute the wine because the wine was very strong so they would certainly people reading this of those days would really understand what he was saying here and basically god is saying you want wine you want to have wine here try some of this full strength now, we tend to look at the Bible, well, I don't, but some people tend to look at the Bible and get troubled by God's judgment. How could a loving God, remember, oftentimes, God just gives us what we ask for. He calls us. He, he uses other people in our lives. He uses the word. I mean, you, you can't go very far without seeing something that will, will uh, resemble God. And then what we say is, no, I'm not interested. And he tries again and again. No, I'm not interested. Well, the Bible says there's a point in time where he just lets you have yourself. You know, you want this. You want this sin. Even Christians have at it. You know, you see, you really want it. Go ahead. You don't want me. You want that. Go, go have it. So it's not that so much God is, is punishing us, but we do it to ourselves. God just, listen, in my life, I couldn't imagine if God said to me, okay, I'm removing my hands from your life. I'd be like, whoa, where are you going? Can can I come with you? You know, the disciples, when Jesus said he was going, they were like, well, can we come too? So in the world system, God just says, take, he's removing his hand. Here, you want this? You got it. Full strength. The second point is literal. Punishment tormented with fire and brimstone. This is another proof text of hell, and that's used in a general sense. People say, hell, hell, hell. It's really eternal punishment. The correct term is the lake of fire. Because we'll read at the end of uh, Revelation that death and Hades are actually taken together and thrown into the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. Pretty awful picture. God's final judgment will not be diluted with grace and mercy. That's a time... There's grace and mercy now, but there's going to be a time for those who are wicked and rebellious in the final judgment. There's going to be no grace and mercy. And I shudder to think of something like that. This is the proverbial point of no return. They'll start to believe the lie. They're not going to some will, Many won't listen to the angel. Uh, they'll have that strong delusion. They'll believe the lie that's propagated and their their seal, their fate will be sealed, so to speak. Now, this is not an enjoyable topic, but it's necessary. And there are many that avoid this topic because they might lose congregants. Oh, talking about hell—that's archaic. That's—I don't want to hear it. It's going to ruin my Sunday. But you know what? This is where we are in the Scripture, and we're going to talk about it. Four aspects according to these Scriptures here. Number one: Hell is conscious. Okay, if I drop something on my foot right now, I would be conscious that my toe hurt. Okay, I would—my brain would know. Boy, that, that hurts. I don't know if you have a brain in your new bodies when you go to hell, but the bottom line is you're going to be conscious of what's going on. It's not going to be like you're in some type of twilight or or it's going to be conscious. Two, it's going to be eternal. It's going to be unabated. It continues forever and ever and ever. I can't imagine anything continuing that long to that magnitude. Three, it's going to be tormentuous. It's not just that, oh, I'm going to go on a vacation. I'm going to be separated from God. I don't like him anyway. No, it's going to be tormentuous. It's going to be painful, it's going to be searing, it's going to be miserable, and it's not going to end. And four, it's going to be unmerciful. Whatever you say, whatever you think, whatever you want, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's just going to be unmerciful. But remember, nobody has to go there. You see, as human beings, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible uh, sh- short of the glory of, of God, and that's what the Bible says. And Sin demands a punishment. It demands judgment. And those who sin and rebel, hell is waiting for them. But Jesus came to the earth, died for our sins, and shed his blood so that he could take all of our sins and he could bury it with him. But that's only part of the equation. The second part is you have to receive that gift of eternal life. You have to want it. You have to receive it. Okay? Our society has a problem, this this certain message. um, Our society certainly has problems with consequences. But understand, there's consequences to everything. We look at the uh, incursion of Israel and Hamas, and uh, it it is troubling, the death toll over there. But you know, 7,200 rockets were fired into Israel. They counted them, 7,200 rockets since 2005. That's pretty bad. And they fire them, unfortunately, from silos that they build into apartment complexes so there's no retaliation. I've seen the videos of it, you know, it's, it's real stuff. Uh, the Israelis have great intelligence. And this is the consequences. What if, what if Mexico fired one rocket into our country? You think we would wait for the other 7,199? I don't think so. There's consequences. The world and society doesn't like the dirty job that the military has to do, and even police but there's consequences to our actions. The world doesn't like the scriptures because of judgment. They don't like to hear that stuff, but there's consequences. And largely it's because there's no reverence for God anymore. There's no reverence for authority. And as a society, we all make excuses for our actions. The serial killer, you know, he didn't get a train when he was 10. So this is his way of acting out his mischildhood. I'm sorry, it doesn't hold water. What about the people's lives that you took? God's love is a righteous love. He will not allow those who have destroyed this earth, human beings who have polluted his earth, who haven't taken care of his earth, who've uh, killed each other and, and spilled blood over and over and over again. He's not going to allow a s- sinful and w- rebellious and wicked people to come to his heaven and then go, there goes the neighborhood. They're ruining my place. You know, they're <laughs> trashing things up here. Look at the harps, they're breaking them and stuff. It's just not going to happen. And I'll tell you what, I like that. You know, I want to go somewhere where I don't have to be hypervigilant. I don't have to have an alarm system on my house. I don't have to call the school if, my, if you know the bus comes and my son isn't on it. This is the sick world that we live in. So I'm happy that he's really particular about his heaven. And only those who have been cleaned and washed by the blood of Christ will be allowed there. The three angels' messages really are a message of mercy prior to judgment. When you love someone enough, you warn them of their sinful or carnal behavior. And there's one of two ways they can respond. One is they can take the correction and be saved from the trouble. Or two, they can disregard it. And it may not happen right away, but they'll fall and they'll fall hard. It's merciful to tell the truth in love. And and, and I believe I see that here. If I tell you something, if I take you aside and say, hey, you know, you did something wrong or I'm concerned about this, it's not because I'm trying to become a a jerk. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I mean, in my heart, I'd like to be liked by everyone. But sometimes I have to tell you the hard things. And you know what? It's really the shepherd who turns a blind eye to his flock's problems is the one who's not loving his flock. I'm going to love my flock because I love you enough to tell you if you've done something wrong, even if you don't like me afterwards. It's, it's the reverse of what you feel. Don't let your feelings rule you because your feelings will mess with you. They'll trick you. There was, um, and I've, I've shared this before, in, in our marriage, uh, my wife and I, in the beginning, um, I was a jerk as a husband. I really was. I was a jerk. And uh, a friend of mine who's now a pastor in Kearney, Luis Solis, he, uh, he would sit me down. And I knew he had a good marriage. And I bit my tongue while he pointed his finger at me and berated me and told me what a jerk I was. But I'm like, but what about what about Heather? He's like, I don't want to hear about Heather. I want to talk about you. <laughs> but I got to tell you, it was it was one of the best things that he and his wife could have done for us because we have a great marriage now. And I attribute it in those formative years to me taking a pounding. And I, I don't regret any of it. So it's the truth and love. It's a mission of mercy to help someone who's Aaron and put them on the track. I mean, my question to you is, what are your relationships like? Are they plastic and shallow? Oh, I like that shirt today, you know? Oh, I like that thing that you bought. Or, hey, I just bought some new tools. You want to come over and see them? Is that all we talk about? Because if our relationships don't go deeper, what, what good are they? If the roots don't go down deep, when the storms come, the thing just gets uprooted. So we really need to examine our relationships and see, are we just friendly with everybody or do we have deep, strong, lasting relationships? Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Some um, translations help to make this easier reading, but basically the saints need encouragement to endure, especially during this rough time period. They need to persevere because their temporary tribulation wouldn't compare to the eternity of heaven. Paul often spoke about these present trials, these present sufferings can't compare to the glory of heaven, to what the Lord has prepared for us, for what's waiting for us in eternity. When you look at eternity and we look at our fleeting problems, they really don't measure up. He says, blessed are the dead who die from now on in this time period. There's a special blessing for those who do persevere During this difficult time, this is another. I guess you could say a beatitude in Revelation. The first beatitude was, "Blessed is he who hears this prophecy, who reads, who hears this prophecy, and who actually applies it." For the time is at hand. And here's another one of those blessings. And then he says, "To rest from the labor, from your labor, and your works will follow you." This is an insight to the rewards received in heaven for what we've done here. And we see that through the scripture. The different scriptures talk about different rewards that we will get. Different consequences for our actions good actions serving the lord consequences in heaven so what rewards are waiting for us some christians barely make it to heaven let alone receiving heavenly rewards perseverance and patience what is it that god is wanting you to persevere through right now in light of what i just read listen everybody has trials no, I'm not going to minimize yours, you won't minimize mine. But when I look at what's going to happen to these folks, these Christians, these believers who go through this very dark time period where probably churches won't be allowed, you may not find another Christian for another 10 miles, whatever it is, they're going to have to go it alone through this very difficult time. But perseverance and patience, no matter where you are as a believer, no matter what time period, God calls us to persevere and to have patience. Could be a financial issue. And I'm hearing that more and more with what's going on. People are nervous. What's going to happen with my retirement? What's going to happen with my job? Uh, can I even find a job? Could be a marital issue. Some may be struggling for years with maybe, you know, there's some that come to us and say, I'm struggling. Can you help us out? Can you pray for us? And then there's some that, some that are very quiet. You know, you don't know what happens in somebody else's home. Could be a marital issue that you're going through. Could be character assassination but, but I was really right, and nobody believes me. It could be chronic health issues. It could be relationships. Who doesn't, really, if you look at a cross-section of society, even Christianity, who doesn't have one problem with a relationship somewhere, right? There's always, we wear against each other because we're all selfish and we're all sinners. So we, we run into these relationship issues. And some may raise their hand and say, how about E, all of the above? <laughs> you know, pray for me. And my question is, what is the word speaking to you today? Because the word is speaking to you today. What is it that you need to persevere and have patience through and trust God? That's the key. We can do it on our own, go on autopilot and maybe get through some of those twists and turns. But pretty soon you realize as a believer, something's not right. Somewhere I left God behind and I try to do it myself. So what is it God can help you through today that you're you're dealing with? Maybe this message hit the spot to some of you. Verse 14. And I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle and another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. I'm going to break this up into two parts. 14 through 16 is the first harvest and uh, 17 through 20, the last few verses, as the, the, the second harvest. Now, this may get confusing as we go reading it more because you're going to see angels everywhere. You know, there's an angel with fire, there's an angel with sickles. A lot of angels run around with sickles. Um, if you're not familiar, it's a farming implement. It has a long stick and there's a blade on the end of it. And it's used to cut down the wheat, right, into large quantities so you can wrap them up and, and take it with you. I um, actually looked up the Grim Reaper. I'm, I'm wondering if all these angels with sickles was a, uh, some, some type of idea for someone to come up with the Grim Reaper. I don't know. But I couldn't really find the origin of it. Anyway, so you've got a bunch of angels running around, and you believe what I believe is Christ at the helm. He has the, the golden crown. He stands out. He's got the cloud accoutrement. He's got the title of the Son of Man. Um, I believe that this figure is probably Christ. He's leading everybody, all right? You know, I have, to laugh, I have to laugh at those who view Jesus as a pacifist, who have this impression of Jesus that is so weak and effeminate that um, he's just useless as a savior. That's not the picture of Christ. Christ is a lion. The reason he, you know, he, he took the lion in him and he was able to abate that to become the lamb for our sake, for our sake. He came as a lamb. He came as a gentle figure. Why? Because he knew what was waiting for those who rebelled against God. It's just amazing what you, when you think about what Jesus did and the thoughts behind that for him to come here and to, to, to not be the lion at first but be the lamb. He did it so he could shed his blood so we wouldn't have to go through this time period when he comes as a lion. He almost comes in, in, a, in a, such a gentle way that he's begging us. I love you. You don't realize what's in store for the rebellious. Please, please believe in me. I'm dying for your sins. So Jesus is not this weak figure. He's mighty. This might be the final separation of the wheat and the tares. If you remember the the story in Matthew 13 when Jesus says, the weeds will grow up with the wheat. And actually when I did a study on wheat and tares, in some areas those weeds that grow up with the wheat actually look like the wheat. And it isn't until the tares, the weeds are fully grown, that you see their true colors. And when you you, you cut down the, the stalks, you can separate the good wheat from the weeds. So Jesus spoke about the wheats and the tares. Those true believers versus those maybe make-believers and non-believers, they're going to be separated at some point in time. And this looks like that separation where the believers are safe for eternity, but the the wicked are judged. Now, again, I'm, let me just do a visual only because try to make some sense of this. I believe Christ is at the helm. He's at the ready. He's ready to go. And he's got other angels that that are following him to do this. One angel has this power of fire that he can just... The Bible talks about the heavens and earth being burnt up with fervent heat, so he has the power to just go, and everything gets torched. And then you have the one angel who comes out of the temple. Again, it's a heavenly vision. He's in the direct presence of God the Father, and he gives the signal, and boom, they're ready to rock and roll on the earth. So that's my impression of what's going on. hope it's right. Verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple, which was in heaven, he also having a shrub sickle, and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire and he cried with a loud uh, cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of god and the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs, or, translation, about 184 miles. Second part of the harvest, the grape harvest. This is judgment. This is because of the height of sin, rebellion, and wickedness. And it's a little gory here. The juice is the blood. The juice is a picture of the blood that's going to flow from this, uh, from this judgment. Um, it's pretty amazing imagery. Verse 20 gives us allusions to the final battle, the battle of Armageddon. And in the book of Revelation, there's a few concepts, the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, the 666, and this is another one. Even if someone's a non-believer, they understand, oh, Armageddon is the last great battle. So much of the world understands or has an idea of what this is. Armageddon just really is Har Megiddo, which is the Mount of Megiddo. And I've seen a picture of this. This is a, a, a portion of land in Israel where I've seen the photos for miles. It's just flat. It's a a perfect place for armies to line up against each other, especially and many, many uh, battles were fought at Megiddo. Uh, But what was beneficial or nobody really had the advantage, you would face your army before the age of of aircraft. They would, you know, the archers, the spearmen, the, uh, the cavalry, and they would face up and they would, you know, go to war. So a lot of battles, a lot of blood is flown at Megiddo and there will be uh, one more great battle to end all battles. And Psalm 2, I've covered this many times from Scripture, is a foreshadowing of the world going against God. Why do the people plot a vain thing? It's, it's futile. Why would you even think you could go up against God and win? But this is where that's going to happen. This is where the carnage is so great and the blood flows up to the, the horse's bridles, which is about maybe four feet high. And what's interesting, incidentally, is they've measured the distance from Megiddo, southeast to Petra. Remember we talked about Petra? Antichrist attacks. Uh, the Jewish people flee. They go east and they go into uh, Petra. And they find safety in that rock city, in, which is we know is modern-day Jordan. And what's interesting about that is Petra, the old name was called Basra, not the Basra in Iraq, a different spelling. Basra, which means sheepfold or sheep pen. And it gets even better. In 1994, July 1994, Israel and Jordan signed the peace treaty. So you talk about all these events. We talked about the um, the European Union, 1994, the Maastricht Treaty. I believe it was 94, 96. We talked about uh, this peace treaty between Jordan today and Israel, 1994, which was, do my math real quick, 14 years ago, uh, real quick. And uh, this is one of the few peace treaties that Israel has with Muslim-dominated countries. So everything is set up before July 1994. There were those who would come into Petra and they'd be arrested or they'd be, something would happen to them because Jordan didn't have that treaty with Israel. Now the doors are opened up. So pretty fascinating about the uh, Battle of Megiddo or Armageddon. Uh, and if, what, two more scriptures I'm going to read and then I'm going to wrap it up uh, and, and just kind of make sense of this. When the Lord comes back, when the Christ comes back, the Messiah, as we know, Yeshua, Jesus... He's going to come back in judgment. He's going to come back as that lion. And most Calvaries understand that he will uh, set his feet down on the Mount of Olives and the the, the Mount of Olives will split. This is all eschatological, interesting stuff. I'll read two scriptures from Zechariah 14, verse 3 and 4. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. This is the Old Testament. As he fights in the day of battle, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And then there's another scripture, Isaiah 63, which also talks about the Lord's return, but he's in a different location, and I'm going to bring this together. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6, the vengeance of God, Old Testament. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra or Petra or the Rock City there in Jordan? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. He doesn't need our help. And from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was none to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury had sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. So you have a few locations here. You have Megiddo, which is uh, northwest of Jerusalem. You have Jerusalem. It's kind of like a, a straight line in a sense. And then you have uh, Petra uh, in the area of Jordan or Basra. And we know that the Messiah will come to, to the Mount of Olives. We know that he'll be fighting in the Battle of Megiddo. And we also know that he will go into this Petra area and save his, the fleeing Jews who found refuge and, and, and save them from the armies that are going to come after them. Uh, so you, you see these few locations that that Jesus is going to come to when he comes back in judgment. And different Bible scholars argue about, well, he went to Basra first, and then he went to the Mount of Olives, and then he went to Megiddo. You know what? I'm, I'm not going to get into that. But just suffice it to say that when he comes back, talked about the grapes, talked about the blood, talked about the judgment, you see the second harvest of judgment. And it should be pretty scary, especially for those who maybe don't know the Lord and who maybe are living a rebellious and very wicked life and you know you are, and you've been running from the Lord. It should be very sobering. We don't go into judgment all that much, but in this book, we're in judgment. So, in closing, it's a pretty graphic, gory, maybe unsettling display. And some may say, some may struggle with this. As a new believer, I struggled a little bit until I really understood the scriptures. Well, how could a loving God, and we've gone through that. But it's also because we're desensitized. In our society, we're desensitized to justice. There's always a reason why the offender or the wicked get away with stuff. We see it all the way back in the Old Testament. So that's where where we're at. In Europe, they're so enlightened that they've abolished the death penalty, but they'll still murder millions of babies in the womb, right? We're, We're going that way too. We don't want to punish the ones who should be punished but what we do is we'll kill babies in the wounds. Uh, if this FOCA goes through, this Freedom of Choice Act, do your homework, Google it, pray for your president that he doesn't sign it, because it's going to bring more carnage into this country. So, you know, I have a perspective most of you don't have. In 18 years of law enforcement, I've seen victims of rapes, of murders. I've seen uh, so many things in my mind that some of them I forgot. Uh, there's just so much in there. And I've seen the injustice. There's a a phrase, and you've heard it in different forms, no peace, no justice, and it's true. Without justice, there can't be peace. And in this world, there is no justice, so there's no peace. Most of the criminals and problematic people are running the countries of the world, you know? (laughs) Dictators are are brutal, savage, Stalin, Hitler, um, you know, all these guys. And uh, there is no peace because there is no justice. And people are under the oppressive yokes of these dictatorships. You know, we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King, but do you know across the Atlantic, there's still slavery. Can you believe that? Today in the world, there's still slavery. How is that? A lot of injustice in the world. God is going to come, and righteously he will deal with the injustices, and he will finally settle the scores. So don't be brainwashed by what the media tells Christians they think that they should believe. Justice is good. The problem with with um, with You know, killing and vengeance is that if it's done inequitably, the wrong person gets sent to the chair or a a person is in the old days they would lynch somebody and they didn't have all the facts. That's more injustice. So if, if I or you or anybody else was at the helm and we were the ones to mete out justice, it would be unfair because we're biased people. But when God meets out justice, it is good and it is righteous. And his heaven will be purified of the injustices and the unrighteousness of the world. So, in closing, this is a dichotomy between two harvests. The first one you saw, the wheat harvest with the sickle. It's good. And it separates the good from the bad. And the good are saved and safe eternally. And the the second harvest is a bad one, the grape harvest. It's It's the rotten vine. It has to be cut down. And its grapes have to be squashed. It leads to suffering, torment, and punishment. The question is, which harvest will you be a part of? And which harvest do you want to be a part of? And only you can answer that question. Let's pray.